Welcome to the Healthy Human Revolution podcast. I'm Dr. Lori Marvis, and today I'm so honored and excited to welcome Dr. Peter Johnston. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. And I'm honored and excited to be on your podcast. It's a, a real treat. Well, there's going to be maybe a, a, an occasional slight delay. So we ask the audience patience as you are halfway around the world in the future in Australia. <laughs> <laughs> And with that, can you tell us a little bit about you and what you basically, what is your uh, work in Australia? Because then I'd like to go back into your history and as to how you actually got into the plant-based movement. But can you tell us a little bit about you and what you do? Certainly. I'm, I'm a whole food plant-based dietitian and I work in several areas. I do some private practice. Um, I have a patient later this morning. I, I don't really promote that much, but it's, it's sort of growing steadily. I've primarily been doing workplace health programs, which has been extremely exciting. And I seem to be doing more public speaking these days. And I'm working very closely with some wonderful colleagues to establish a lifestyle medicine clinic in Melbourne, where I live. Excellent. So there's some interesting growth going on in Australia, and I've met you and several others when you guys came to a conference, the Plantrition Project in California. I think, was that three years ago? I think the first time. I think it's been three years. <laughs> so I see you every, every year. I'm sorry? The one I've just come from was my third, yes. Yes, absolutely. Perfect. And so can you tell us a little bit, how does someone in Australia find a whole food plant-based diet and then become impassioned to pursue a career helping others find health this way? Um, two parts to that. I guess a lot of my adult life has been around helping others to make help people have a better life and make the world a better place. And... I've had a very privileged life, a very lucky life, and I, it gives me joy to help leave the world better than I found it. Um, so that's, I think, one part of your question. The, the first part is, do you, do you, really, do you want me to um, go into how I became Whole Food Plant Based? Yeah, or? yeah absolutely. So you were... Did you were you always plant based or were you always vegan or did, were you raised that way? What how what's the the story and the journey to this point? No, no, far from from it. I I wish I was. Um, I, I suspect I wouldn't need reading glasses at this age if I had had a, a very healthy upbringing without the animal food. My upbringing was healthy by today's standards, and I've. Lucky, luckily have never been overweight or, or had chronic disease of any kind. My mother was a dietitian. Mm. We grew up eating lots of homegrown fruit and vegetables. And I was a child in the 60s and in the south of New Zealand. And there were two restaurants in town, but kids weren't taken. And it was a treat for adults to go. So I don't remember mum, my mum and dad going much. And there weren't fast food restaurants. I distinctly remember as a teenager when the first KFC came to Dunedin and there were queues around the block 
Um, so when we didn't have cafes, so it was easier to be healthy, but we did have a meat and three veg kind of diet. So it was, it was still very animal food centric. Um, we would have had fish and chips once a month. That was horribly greasy and I still remember feeling nauseous afterwards after those meals, but we still liked it. But um, dripping with, with with beef fat that they fried it in, so it gives me the heebie-jeebies to think about it now. So, But we were healthy. We ran around and, and I didn't know anything about vegetarianism until I met my first girlfriend and picked it up after a year of living with her, not through any idea of the health or the ethics or the environment, but I just simply lost the taste for animal food and gagged on a ham roll one day at university and thought, I'm not having this anymore. So from that day on in 1981, when I was 23, I stopped eating meat and fish. And 10 years later, on my way to my postdoc in Montreal, I met a New Zealand woman in India who told me about an amazing book I should read called Diet for a New America by John Robbins. So I bought that when I got to Montreal. It, it laid out, if you don't know, for people or the audience who don't know, the health, the ethics and the environmental reasons for not eating any animal food. So I promptly started switching over to being vegan. Mm. And, um, so that was how I became vegan. I knew for some time that oil wasn't healthy but thought, I'm skinny, I'm fit, I exercise a lot, it won't matter for me. But I eventually dropped it because I thought, well... I'm not getting younger and I need every advantage I can get because I still like to keep very active. I cycle, you know, 200 Ks a year, a week most, most wow. weeks. I do yoga and stands and ski and windsurf. So I value retaining the health I have. So now I look for every edge and every angle to optimise my diet. So the, how old are you then? Because you certainly don't look... Like what I'm thinking is calculating in my head. <laughs> I'm 61 as of Six, last August, so. 61, wow. Yeah. So yeah. for those of you listening, and I've met him in person, he definitely doesn't look like the typical 61-year-old that we see. <laughs> and you're windsurfing and you're doing all these other activities. That's phenomenal. So, um, so you just kind of migrated this way through people that you met and took it what you read and heard and just kind of intuitively found a healthier diet. So you've been plant-based or vegan for how many years now? 28 years. 28 years. Wow. That's incredible. So then was it your mom's path as a dietitian that led you to become a dietitian or how did you incorporate, decide to incorporate your passion of eating plant-based with being a dietitian and then the work that you do now? Um, my my mum, wonderful as she is, never embraced being fully vegan. She's I've sent her all the books and DVDs and she looks at them and reads them and says, that's nice, dear, but I'm still having my animal food. <laughs> She's still very healthy at 83 and just back uh -huh. from a week of walking with friends out in the country. Um, but, no, I left my postdoc in Montreal. It didn't, didn't go very well. I got dissolution with academia. 
had a few years in San Francisco as a as a political activist, and then decided I needed to get back into some other career and came back to Australia to do my master's in nutrition in ninety six and ninety seven. So, and even then, I was still focused on on my political activism for for a few years, but didn't switch back to using that master's degree for a few years. So can we back up a little bit and talk about what political activism, what were you? (laughs) (laughs) That's a part that I wasn't aware of. So can you tell me a little bit about that? (laughs) Sure. It's, I've had a, a, in retrospect, my career has been quite unstrategic and a little bit ad hoc and impulsive. Um, if I did things again, I, I could have um, perhaps saved some time. And, <laughs> but I guess it's added to who I am, warts and all. So I came to San Francisco originally wanting to work with Francis Morlape, and who wrote Diet for a Small Planet, mm. after I left my postdoc. And they were in San Francisco, and I tracked them down, but they didn't have any paid employment. So I ended up by chance working for a peace activist group and did that. And that led me down a rabbit hole of learning a lot about what's wrong with the world and why and getting involved with people and working to change that. So I did that for about a decade, pretty much full time, including while I was doing my master's degree in nutrition. So I kind of had one eye on the nutrition and one eye on the politics and Interestingly, I, I never had any success of interesting any of my political colleagues of the benefits of a plant-based diet environmentally or any, for any other reasons. So what does a political activist do? I mean, we hear that term, you know, those who are um, activism for, you know, animal rights, we see them out picketing, but what does someone do for a decade? I mean, what is your day-to-day what, what does that look like day to day? I'm just really curious. Um, initially, it was very much part-time, but then I pretty much pretty soon got drawn into doing it more full-time and I worked very hard at it and applied myself and studied hard to learn about current events and history and politics and economics. So I ended up becoming a branch organiser for a left-wing political party in in two cities in Australia. And that involved organising meetings, organising rallies, protests, distribution of our news media. Wow. We had our own newspaper, um, public speaking and recruiting and training people, running education programs. It was very full on, but very, very exciting and fun, but it keeps you poor. And it dominates your whole life. <laughs> <laughs> so dominating, <laughs> penniless, but you're but you're living your passion and you know following your beliefs and and actively working to make things change and better. So that's that's to be applauded. I mean, there's a lot of sacrifice that goes with that. Yes, and and we we didn't get paid. We paid the organization contributions from a part of whatever money we had. I worked 
part-time for, for some of those years and gave a big chunk of my salary to help support the organisation. Wow. So it definitely is living, living on the bread line. Wow, goodness. And so when did you decide to break from that and, and do more of the nutrition? Because, I mean, there must have been, was there an incident or just you're like, I can't live penniless anymore <laughs> and move on to something that will be maybe more regular supporting yourself? <laughs> it was taking over my life and it wasn't allowing me time to focus on my health or my relationship that was suffering um, and so I, I took a break from it and didn't go back. Mm. Um, ended up working in local government in a health promotion community development role, which, which allowed me to dust off the nutrition work. And um, I kept reading all those years. I still had a voracious interest in what was happening and, and read, you know, the books by Ornish and, and Esselstyn and Neil Barnard and and, you know, followed up with what was happening. But it was, internet was new then and um, there wasn't the YouTube resource and podcasting wasn't around. So it was waiting for books to come out and subscribing to a few email groups at that time. But I kept in the loop. I kept reading and following what was happening. But the advent of YouTube made it a lot easier and the internet and so many resources around plant-based nutrition hmm. made it um, easy to keep on top of where things were and to meet and network with other people. Absolutely. That, so, that first, oh, sorry, that first local government job was also a real uh, motivator because I was working with older people in public housing who were disadvantaged on many levels and had, had, pretty horrible lives and their chronic disease was appalling, much, much higher than your average population. And I could see how they lived and their risk factors, including their diet, and was started to work to see if we could develop a program there to help them trial a healthy eating program. And I attracted the interest of a professor at a nearby university. But for different reasons, I ended that job um, and he moved cities and it didn't get off the ground. So that was probably 12 years ago. And it was before I knew about the PCRM's work of Jumpstart and Kickstart and, and you know, the other programs like that and their work with GEICO hadn't been done then. But I, I knew there was a way that we could wrap around some support with these people and help them get healthier. And they were interested and some of them knew that I was a dietitian, but... It was too hard for them without wrapping around some support because they were very poor. They were 55 and over. Mm. Um, so it was distressing to see how they were tracking and to know that some lifestyle modifications could have helped them a lot. I Tell me a little bit about the current situation in Australia. So, you know, a large part of our audience will be in the U.S. Is, you know, the political sincerity kind of in in touch with the political arena, arena as far as your food system, is it similar to the U.S., your healthcare, your healthcare system? Are you struggling? What's the chronic disease burden? What, what's going on in Australia? Our chronic disease burden and our obesity is very closely tracking the U.S. On some measures, we may be equal to 
um, where you're at. We re a report came out earlier this year that we'd added a million new obese people in the last four years, which is horrific. Um, it's now approaching 70% are overweight or obese. Most adults of working age will have multiple risk factors for chronic disease and if not already have chronic disease. We're in a very, very bad state. The food system is similar. We're a big country with different, different climate zones, so we can get tropical fruit and vegetables seasonally all year round, so it's trucked up and down the country. The healthcare system is different. and We still do have a large viable public healthcare system, albeit it's bulging at the seams and struggling to cope with the tsunami of chronic disease, mm. particularly as the baby boomer cohort comes through and is needing more hospital care. About 45% of Australians, though, have private health insurance, which allows them to essentially jump the queue and go to a private hospital and um, receive a few benefits like a private room and a TV and to choose their, their specialist. Um, interestingly, that is subsidised by taxes quite heavily and that sector would likely fall over without the public subsidies. In fact, it is struggling at present. Um, and those subsidies are paid out of everyone's taxes, regardless of whether you can afford to benefit from that private health insurance or not, which I find hmm. quite inequitable and um, disturbing. For that reason, I don't have private health insurance. It's not a question of budget. I just am ethically not happy with the way it works. Albeit there's still dedicated people working to help get people well within the within the parameters of the Western medicine system, which is, as you know, treatment, not, not reversal. So the, the public health system has a fixed government budget and they're struggling to meet that. And it's treatment-based like in the US, so it's drugs or surgery. And most people in hospital are there for preventable chronic diseases. The private system, they're paid for operations by health insurance companies. And the health insurance companies are actually in what's known as a jaws of death situation at the moment because their premiums for, for having a policy are increasing above the annual cost of living increases. There are gap fees for most, most treatments or surgeries or operations that you pay out of pocket on top of your premiums. And so young people in particular are either abandoning the health insurance or not taking it out and traditionally they've made the model viable because they cross-subsidise the older sick people. Mm. So the younger people who are not, they're paying in, but they're not taking money out. So now that the health funds are facing the, the fact of more older sick people who are costing them a lot of money and less healthy young people who are subsidising them. Mm. And so they're not, their payments to the private hospitals are not keeping up with consumer price index or inflation so the private hospitals are struggling as well. So we have a system in crisis. Wow. It's, it's not as inefficient as the US. Nowhere in the world is, unfortunately, as you know. Um, it's around 20% of your GDP going to healthcare. We're, I think we're tracking it around 8 or 9%, but that's growing. Um, and there are inefficiencies that, that 
Health economists say it would be better to redirect that funding for the private system into the public system and have a better, more equitable healthcare sector. Wow. <clears throat> so does your healthcare system cover drugs as well or does that come out of the pocket of the person? Um, no, but some it's complicated. Some drugs are subsidised by the government to make them affordable. And most people pay a small fee for medications. If you are poor and have a, a government card, you can get those for no cost. Hmm. Okay. So then how does someone's work like what you do fit into this type of system? So how do you plug yourself into this and reach people and help people in this type of setting? Are you, what, what exactly, how did this start? Like what, what do you do exactly in this system? Because it seems like it'd be kind of a difficult situation because there may not be the money available for people to actually seek help in this way or am I mistaken? No, you're mostly correct. Um, the private health insurance companies do fund people to visit dietitians. So I'm seeing a patient later this morning who is on health insurance funding and she'll get, get some of the cost of seeing me rebated. But by and large, as in the US, apart from the Ornish program, which is amazing, the preventative and, and reversal programs and measures are not incentivized or funded. We're, my colleagues and I are working very hard to, to make some headway and to change that and set up a model where we can show the power of, of our lifestyle medicine and, and reversing and, and addressing chronic disease. Can you tell it's us early days. Yeah, you've had some success though, right? Can you tell us a little bit about your work with that and what you've seen? Well, on different levels, my, I initiated, finally did get a workplace health program going for helping people with chronic disease and weight issues um, address that through trialing a whole food plant-based diet similar to the one I envisaged for these older people in public housing. So within the local government I've been working in and had an opportunity where the CEO was looking for innovative ways to increase productivity. So I, I pitched this program and was given permission to start it. So we took cohorts of staff who volunteered to trial the program and we had them blood tested pre and post a three-week intervention, and we did the weight and blood pressure as well, and we took subjective measures pre and post, qualitative measures, and then, got, and then wrapped around lots of support to help them switch overnight to a whole food plant-based diet, going cold tofu, if you like. Um, <laughs> and we got, we've run five of those programs at the workplace. It's been on hold for the last six or eight months. I'm because I was looking to jump out of that workplace and didn't want to schedule one. Um, but we may run one early next year if I can get the CEO to trial it. He's mm. promised and hasn't made the time yet. So that would open a few doors, I think, if the CEO can see the power of what we're doing. Because until you do it and learn, you don't really know what you don't know. Mm -hmm. it's, such, it's such a whole new world of understanding around how to live and eat that... Until that's explained to you, 
people won't appreciate the power of what's happening even under their noses. So even though I've, I've given quick one-page summary reports to the senior managers around our outcomes, I don't think they quite appreciated what we've achieved. It's the first for Australia and we've put now a quarter of the staff at that civic centre through these programs, 83 people. An average total cholesterol drop in three weeks of 20%. Wow. LDL drops around 23% in three weeks on average. They lose about three kilos in three weeks. The subjective measures are amazing. They feel better, they sleep better, their pain diminishes, they have more energy, they feel more productive, they focus better. The kids, the kids change, partners change, the ripple effects are amazing as well. Um, all sorts of wonderful stories from that. So the, the, first, the first program I did, I was scheduled to present at a conference here in Melbourne with Dr. Michael Clapper as the keynote. Um, and so I'd only just scrabbled together the, the results the night before. It was touch and go to get it done in time. And when I presented about this, I had a line of people afterwards wanting to talk to me because I was so excited and curious. And then I had a bunch of emails and messages from people saying, can I help you on this program? So after that first program, we then had a team of seven people who were all nutrition qualified, helping me deliver the program. So we refined it every, every program, adding more steps, um, adding more nuances and refinements to make it work better, engage people better. And we, we give people the why and the how and the peer support, and we find those are the three key pillars. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and from that we've produced, for example, this 80-page cookbook with resources and colour photos. Oh, wow. And lots of, of how-to and why and links up front, and we give them a copy of that. The first program was, was a bit more rough. We just gave them website links and said, yeah, look up these websites for recipes, but <laughs> it still worked really well. We got amazing results. So amazing. But the experience of doing that and the GP that I've been working with and his wife, the three of us are now working very hard to transfer these skills to a lifestyle medicine clinic. Mm-hmm. So the GP, Dr. Malcolm Mackay, and his partner, Jenny Cameron, are wonderful. They've also been simultaneously running six-day immersion retreats. So they're intensive and they involve meditation, yoga, walks on the beach, um, lots of lectures, cooking classes. So between the two of it, the three of us, we've, we've got the skills and the resources and the practice now to run an Ornish-type program, which is what we've been pitching to hospitals. Because the, the Western style of, of healthcare is is really a misnomer it's sickness care mm-hmm. and the model as you know is that people were told they'll never get better they've got type 2 diabetes here's the metformin you'll be on this for life when we've known for decades that that's not necessary so and same for heart disease many autoimmune diseases etc so it's both heartbreaking and it's futile to see people not getting opportunities and and, and in fact I'm heartened by the sort of early murmurings that of things like for a cardiologist not to offer a patient 
the option of a whole food plant-based diet is essentially malpractice. Mm -hmm. um, we're bouncing around this idea to see what we can do with Australia. There's potential for a test lawsuit to push this along and get some publicity. Wow. Um, it's, it's early days, but I'm interested in, in how that might unfold. To, to not to penalise or victimise any practitioners, but to, to just showcase that this is something that health practitioners should be aware of and should be advocating and offering. Even though it's difficult right. for patients and not everyone will be interested, I think as health practitioners we have a duty to offer people the opportunity of something that will reverse their condition. Right. What the patient does with that is up to them. Mm -hmm. But it, I, it essentially does constitute malpractice in a, in a sense. A practitioner has a duty to keep up to date with the research. And I know my colleagues and I work very hard to keep abreast of developments. So, you know, and it, the healthcare system is, as I said, is, is bursting at the seams. The economic models are not working. We've, we've costed out our program, a 12-week program, 48 hours of contact for under $4,000 per patient. Compare that to bypass surgery, which would be 50000 or more, um, and risks of death and other complications, and, and, and the person coming back in 12 or 18 months with the vessels blocked up again. Right. And, or the stent blocked up, you know, because it's not addressing determinants of or why death. that person became ill. So to me, this is really a no-brainer mm -hmm. um, that we need to find the right person. Yeah, we're, we're looking to find the right person high up in the healthcare system or in the private health insurance industry who will say, you're right, let's trial this. And we've had two close calls. We had a conference here in Melbourne in February where um, – where uh, Scott Stoll and Neil Barnard came out as keynote speakers and Malcolm and Jenny and I presented and we were approached by the allied health manager of a major private hospital in Melbourne saying, we would love to host our lifestyle medicine clinic that you were talking about in our hospital. Do you want to come and meet our CEO? So we did and the CEO was very keen. We went away to write up the proposals. By the time we got them back, They'd restructured the organisation, laid off the CEO, and the new boss was cool on the idea. Oh, no. So we were understandably devastated <laughs> because they'd showed us around and said, we have all these rooms, we have demonstration kitchens, gyms, physios, exercise physiologists, we'll help you with all this, we've got the space, here's where you can operate. It was a dream come true. Oh, man. Um, so we then had a lead with a large public hospital in Melbourne and um, sent out slightly adjusted proposals to them. And a month later, we got word back that because of severe economic constraints, they were under instructions to not implement any new programs, which was, again, devastating and ironic because this is exactly the kind of thing which would have helped their bottom line. Because right, so, it's a public hospital, right? So they, they have limited funds. Yeah. It's not like so a private a hospital, right, that a private insurance company is paying for large, you know, expensive procedures, $100,000 for whatever. 
they need to stay within a budget because they only have limited budget. They're not getting any more. So, wow, incredible. What if you guys offer to share it for free? Uh, we may do that, but we need to pay our bills still. We both have, we all have some mortgages and um, need to put food on the table. Oh, yeah. I used to, I did this similar type thing. Um, I didn't get paid extra for it, but at the hospital where I worked, um, I ran a lifestyle medicine clinic at night. And I did that for about four months and it was very successful. But then I moved to Florida to work with Dr. Furman. But um, it is, you know, it, it's again, it's a sacrifice for those who are dedicated to see people change and get well. But it might be as something to help open doors. Yes. In fact, we were going to do it for free with the public hospital system in evenings and weekends, as you mentioned. Um, Excuse me, but but they weren't even willing to trial that. Um, oh no! So due to just a, a cap on new, any new initiatives, so we we now have a lead and a meeting in a few weeks with a very senior and highly connected business person in Melbourne, who I've had links to in the past, and we're hoping that he can open doors for us and connect us to someone in the high place who will understand the economics of what we're offering. Otherwise, we're also looking just for a public space where we rent a room for an evening and a weekend and do like one or two evenings a week and a Saturday afternoon. And we'll just roll it and get the runs on the board. Right, absolutely. But we see this as the inevitable direction that the healthcare system must take if, if it's to move forward. Mm. Is there any, um, I guess you said you've been working with some companies, so you, you were only working with one company. Are there other companies that you're thinking of working with as well? The, the workplace health programs, we have developed some promotional materials and are marketing that to other organisations. So that's really in parallel to the lifestyle medicine clinic work. Um, but it's also exciting because it's life-changing and you're taking willing cohorts of people in groups in significant numbers and changing their lives. And we've found that the adherence to healthy eating is very high, even with a three-week intervention and some follow-ups like linking people into face group supports and emails and the resources we give them. Adherence is really high. So the benefits for the organisations are, are huge in terms of reputation, staff loyalty, staff engagement, as well as productivity. Mm. So we're hoping that will bear some fruit, so to speak, no pun intended, but um, we're also simultaneously very excited about the, the, private, the, the lifestyle medicine clinic um, direction because I think... That just is so important and has such enormous ramifications that we get in the door of one hospital in Melbourne and get runs on the board. We're pretty confident that they will see the efficacy, see the economics, and it will spread like wildfire. They're really, the, the time is perfect, whether it's in private or public. The, the, the private initiative we had would, was, was predicated on 
getting the health funds to pay for the program, which the senior management at the hospital were, were confident that they would be right up their alley because, as I said, they're struggling. And when you put the numbers to them, they most likely would have been interested. So we're still looking to connect with a senior health fund executive to, to make the case. Then it would be easy to go back to a private hospital and say, OK, we have the money, we're ready to roll. Um, find us a room and, and we'll show you how it works. Mm. So we feel like we're on the cusp. It's, it's close, but we're not quite there. You have, well, and it sounds like there's probably just lessons and things that you were learning with these others near misses that will prepare you for the right opportunity at the right time to be extremely successful. That's how I like to look at these things. <laughs> yes, they're all learning opportunities, definitely. Um, and I'm still optimistic. It, the, it's just such a no-brainer. We, we have to head in this direction. Mm. Wow. So... The, one of the, 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 the difficulties will be we actually have a shortage of whole, whole food plant-based practitioners. Luckily, there are some younger people coming through the, the courses at the moment, but there aren't a lot. So if we get busy, we, will, we might be struggling to have staff who are supportive of the concept. Hmm. Yeah, that's the other issue is physicians. <laughs> Um, That's right, dietitians and and educators and et cetera. Right, absolutely. I can see where that could be an issue because I was the only, well, one that I was in where I was. <laughs> so you know, it's interesting though. Even just the the amount of medication savings per yes. month. I mean, I had one patient that reversed diabetes, and we did calculations. It was upwards of eight hundred dollars a month on one person, um, on a self, you know, these were self-insured, um, entities and it was pretty incredible. If you start thinking about, you know, multiplying that times thousands, it's, it's, it would make a big dent in our, our problem. Mm -hmm. So with that all being yeah, said, definitely. What is the Doctors for Nutrition? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because I know you you have do you have their shirt on? Is that your Doctors for Nutrition shirt? Do modeling the shirt here, yeah. <laughs> I've seen I that, that shirt. <laughs> <laughs> so can you tell us a little bit about that and how that started? Um, and so Doctors for Nutrition. Certainly. Um, it was conceived of by my colleague, um, uh, Dr. Helene Rooks, and, and also Lucy Stegley, who are both wonderful people and great collaborators, and modelled mostly on what the Plantrition Project has done and realising there was a need for bringing practitioners together and advocating around... A number of issues so so educating practitioners changing the healthcare systems and educating the public and so it it has an advisory council of dietitians and doctors from around australia and new zealand it's australasian trans trans tasman as we say across the tasman sea um, new zealand being three hours from australia 
And so it acts to promote the message of whole food, plant-based eating and healthcare. Mm. And it hosted its first conference this year in February with, with, as I mentioned earlier, Dr. Neil Barnard and Dr. Scott Stoll as keynotes and Dr. Alan Desmond from Ireland. He was terrific as well. And, yeah. and local speakers over two days. How many participants did you have attend? There were around 300, I think, and it was booked out, sold out, which was fantastic. That's incredible. So there is definitely an interest. Oh, big interest. The, the vegan lifestyle is growing enormously in Australia, and Melbourne is probably the epicentre. It's enormous. Um, but And people are coming to it from different reasons, obviously. I'm speaking this afternoon at an animal activism conference mm-hmm. on nutrition. So those are people coming at it from the ethical side. There are environmental reasons, people coming at it from that. And we have Extinction Rebellion here, and they ask people to bring only vegan food to their meetings and events. So they've made the connection between food and environment. Um, And some people are coming to it for health reasons, but the the number of people who are vegan who are also whole food plant-based is much smaller. So we have a long way to go. Um, there are a lot of junk food vegans out there. Right, absolutely. So tell me, what what is an, an extinction rebel? Rebellion? What, oh, what is that? Sorry. Extinction, extinction Rebellion began a year ago in England as, as a movement based on non-violent civil disobedience, modelled along the lines of the civil rights campaigners in the US around the work of... Gandhi and other social change people. They were academics who studied social change and what worked and what didn't. So, for example, large being successful, for example, the second Gulf War here in 2003, we had huge marches, record marches, and the government still went ahead and ignored it and, and joined the war. Um, And so these academics were smart and they figured, well, we actually have to impose an economic cost on the government, the central business district, through non-violent civil disobedience. And whatever the government does, they lose because if they don't shut it down, there's an economic cost. If they don't break break up the protest, so people will lie on the streets, block off bridges and corners and intersections glue themselves to things, chain themselves to things. Wow. So you froze there for a second. Something about gluing so the, people. You said people are gluing themselves the to things? The economy slowed down in that area. Chains and pipes and things to, um, to railings and, and machinery and trucks and so forth. So it's hard to drag them away. So oh if, the, if the, the government allows that to continue, then they lose money because there's an economic cost of shutting down part of the business district. If they arrest lots of people, which is what the aim of the Extinction Rebellion is, then that looks bad for the government when they're arresting teenagers and grandmas and normal, normal law-abiding people who have careers and are not um, just your 
stereotypical long head, you know, hippies or radicals or whatever. They're ordinary community members. And so that looks bad for the government when they have hundreds of people in jail. Mm. And so it's forcing the hand by as these protests build. So they're spread, they're spread around the world and there are large protests happening regularly around the world on this basis. And so, but they've, they've made the connection between food and environment, which is wonderful. Mm. And, oh. and I have to confess, even though I'm a, a healthcare practitioner and I have four degrees all around the human condition, psychology, zoology, human genetics and, and nutrition and dietetics, my biggest driver now for what I do is actually the environment. Because if we don't get cut back animal agriculture dramatically, we are going to struggle to arrest the the climate change that's happening, the, the nitrous oxide, the methane, the carbon dioxide. In fact, I think we need to make animal agriculture illegal because for ethical reasons and environmental reasons and health reasons, I think that it, it, it we need to look to a time when it's it's not legal to to farm and kill animals and treat them like commodities. Hmm. Um, a Melbourne philanthropist by the name of Philip Wallen, who's an amazing chap, who's dedicated the rest of his life to giving away the fortune he made, has said that ending animal agriculture is the greatest social justice challenge since the abolition of slavery. Hmm. And I agree with him. I think we really need to do that. So that drives me as well. The, the the appalling lives that livestock have. Um, so on, it's multiple levels, but it's I'm terrified for our environmental future if we don't dramatically reduce uh, the the livestock on the planet. And I don't I'm not sure if you know, but you look at livestock. One third, roughly, are humans, and four percent are wild mammals. Now that, that terrifies me. That's that's just a, a tragic indictment of how we've populated this planet and how we live on this fragile planet. Mm-hmm. And the same figures are there for birds. Mm-hmm. Two thirds, a bit over two thirds of all birds on the planet are chickens and turkeys and livestock animals. Mm-hmm. Less than a third are wild birds. Wow. I, I, mean, I delivered an all-day class to a sorry um, earlier this year. The, the privilege of teaching a, a group of masters of environment students at a local university. I did an all-day class on food and environment, which was um, terrific. I've been following this stuff for a long time, but having the opportunity to put together um, all of the evidence and arguments over six and a half hours with with some exercises and breaks, but there's a lot to it. Um, so, yeah, that's a big driver for me. But the, I'm a health practitioner, so, and I'm, ver- I'm also very excited about, as you can gather, changing the healthcare system and helping get people get well. Right, absolutely. So you, wow, so you did six and a half hour program on food and the environment. I'd love to talk to Correct. you about that after, when we're done. <laughs> I think there's some work. Certainly. Here that we could share there. So um, amazing. So the website for you is perfecthumanfood.com.au. 
and you do private practice, workplace programs, and then you're working on the lifestyle medicine clinic um, with Malcolm. And is there any last bit of advice for those who maybe are in Australia or anywhere, honestly, who, from your point of view, when you're looking at, because you have such a wide range of experience, right? The environmental component, the, the animal ethics, and then the health components put you in a unique place to say, hey, this is, this is be, be my advice for someone who's maybe considering this and maybe hearing this message for the first time. Hmm. Um, hard to know where to start and, and where the person's at. Keep learning is important. There are so many good resources on social media, on YouTube, so many great documentaries that people can easily, easily look at on Netflix. The Game Changers was released this week, which is exciting. In fact, I had a colleague at work come to me and say, I watched The Game Changers and I'm quitting meat. Can you help me? Wow. So that, that was awesome. exciting. So we, we had a chat and I gave him some resources. Um, so, yeah, things like Forks Over Knives, What the Health, Eating Your Lives, there are terrific documentaries. It's it's much easier now for people to find out about this, to connect with other people. Um, oh, be froze. Oh, dear. Sorry, everyone, for the drop here. Oh, Peter, can you hear me? Go ahead. I pause it till you came back on. <laughs> I see you now. Um, my colleague Jenny Cameron has a, an amazing Facebook group which she started and co-convenes called Whole Food Plant-Based Aussies and that has over 11,000 members. So that's a tremendous resource for people who want to learn more about whole food plant-based eating and they share recipes, they share question and answer problems, new developments, new ideas, research, etc. So it's an amazing tool. We recommend all of the people we work with to check that out and sign up. Perfect. So Facebook is a great connecting place. Your website, calling you, emailing you. Um, see if maybe yep. there's someone here who can have um, some help for you. I, I don't know. You never know who you're going to reach. So um, we so appreciate your time, Peter, because you are in the future. It's Friday for me and Saturday for you, <laughs> which is our running joke. Every time we see each other, you're going back to the future. <laughs> yeah. It just cracks me up. But uh, I so enjoy talking to uh, our Australian comrades in arms as we, you know, march forward and helping people find health. So thank you again for all your time. Thank you for the opportunity, um, Laurie. It's lovely to chat with you again, and I hope we connect again soon. Oh, absolutely, absolutely.